to thank Larry Blank for agreeing to come to the Showgirl Tip of the Day podcast. Larry, how are you? I'm very well. Well, we're in that time of year in New York where it gets dark at 4 p.m. So mm-hmm. we go back a long way and I'm happy to have known you for many years. Will you just give a rundown of your early career in New York, the time when you were going to the High School of Performing Arts and your first Broadway show? Oh, wow. That's a trip down. I know. I'm going way back. I'm going way back. Way back. Anyway, I was at the High School of Performing Arts. I was there as a drama student, and I decided to switch to music because I played the piano, and I, I thought it would work out better. So people started calling me to play their auditions because I was the least expensive pianist in all of New York uh, <laughs> because I wanted to work and I was very young. Uh, I met Barry Manilow very early on who gave me a gig before he was Barry Manilow. The gig he gave me, of course, was Adam and Ira in the Catskills while he worked with some chick singer named Bet. So that was the beginning of my career. And then I just kept on practicing and stuff. And finally, a gentleman we both know named Bill Cox hired me to be his assistant at Westbury Music Fair and the Music Fair circuit and really broke me in as a conductor. And my reputation started to spread. I was very young. And ultimately, after kicking around a bit as Bill's assistant and doing a lot of shows in stock and dinner theater like everybody else did at that time, a friend of mine named Arthur Rubenstein, this is not Arthur Rubenstein, this is Arthur Rubenstein, who was a Broadway conductor, was doing a show called Good Time Charlie with Joel Gray and Anne Reinking. And he had to leave. And he gave me the job as his replacement conductor when I was 22 years old. Wow. So all of a sudden, I was conducting a show with Joel Gray at the Palace Theater and Anne Reinking. Of course, Anne Reinking's best friend at that time was a man named Bob Fosse who used to come to many of the performances. And uh, it it was a rather high-powered show, considering it was a flop. It was the same season as Chorus Line. And everybody thought it was going to be a giant hit, which it was not, but it got me started. And because I walked into the show cold without being part of the show, I made a lot of points by just stepping in so I got a reputation as being a guy who could take over quickly. And I started getting calls for other shows to do the same thing. So as time went by, I got called in to do Very Good Eddie. I ended up eventually stepping into Sugar Babies. I'm leaving out a couple of shows along the way. I did the, uh, Don Pippen was a mentor of mine and he got me the job as music director for the International Company of Chorus Line when I was 25 years old, which went a long way to establishing my career. I met Marvin Hamlish, did their playing our song from the beginning. That's how my career happened. All of a sudden, That's fantastic. Uh, I was very fortunate because of the people I knew and I was prepared for it. And you worked with the late Diana Rigg, who just passed away in a show called Colette. Is that right? I did. The show was written by Schmidt and Jones, who wrote The Fantastics, and I Do, I Do, and 110 in the Shade. And it was a, it was a big musical, and Diana Rigg, who, of course, everybody loved from The Avengers yeah. on, on television, so everybody was thrilled to have her in a musical. 
And unfortunately, the show tanked out of town. But she was wonderful. The experience was was really great. And uh, it was just another big show that you know has a lot of memories. You know, not every single show is a hit show. And I think years ago, shows were produced without the expectation of running for a long, long time. Is that correct? Well, the finances were different. So if a show ran a season on Broadway, mm-hmm. meaning like the season being September to June, uh, they could usually get a tour out of it or stock an amateur afterwards. So eventually a show would, you know, make some money back. But in those days, because the, the numbers were lower, they could do 24 musicals a season. And Fantastic. So there were these, and all of the shows had orchestras of 25, 26, and hired choruses of, you know, there would be 10, eight to 10 dancers, eight to 10 singers. So there was a lot of people being employed. And I mean, I actually remember John Minio, who you probably remember, who was a wonderful dancer, was doing Hello, Dolly. And he quit because it was a giant success. And he quit because he was bored and just went to another show because there were so many shows auditioning. You didn't think about employment. You just jumped to another show. Wow. And where did you live at this time when you were in New York? I was I was living in Manhattan. I grew up in Bayside, Queens, which, you know, you're you're a Long Island girl. I am. But, you know, Bayside was closer to the city (laughs) and it's really part of New York City. I moved into Manhattan when I was 18. And I was living on the Upper West Side because it was very inexpensive in those days. Wow. Unbelievable. And when I met you, you were the music supervisor for a show, a touring company of La Cage aux Faux. And you were living in California by that point. So when did you decide to move to California? And how long were you conducting shows on Broadway before you went across country? Well, it's very funny when you think about it. Um, The... Good Time Charlie was 1975, and this is shocking to me when I think back. I moved to California in 1983. Wow. I had conducted a whole bunch of shows, but the truth was I was going out to California to conduct musicals, and I was very often conducting the very same shows I would have conducted in New York. And then at first I was doing tours, but then... In those days, they were doing West Coast companies that would run years at a time. Evita. I did the West Coast company of Evita, but then I went back to New York and conducted three more Broadway shows. Unfortunately, those three more Broadway shows were in one season. Oh. (laughs) I mean, I had three giant flops in a row, including Colette, as you mentioned. Uh Uh-huh. But I, I was just being employed, but then I went back I've been on the road with Sugar Babies and ended up in California. And I was offered the West Coast Company of Lacage. This was before the tour we did. And mm-hmm. Lacage was 82, 83. I think it was a giant success on Broadway. Yeah. And they thought it would do the same on the, you know, on the West Coast. And I'll tell you what killed it, actually. It came to San Francisco and was gigantic. It could have run in San Francisco for years. 
But sadly, it was 1984, and it was the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. And it, it killed it. Because mm-hmm. the show, show was gigantic. We moved to L.A., and they expected it to run for two years, and it ran less than a year in L.A. Okay. But that's what brought well, me out to L.A. to stay. And when I met you, you were scoring films. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, what happened was when I first came out to L.A. with playing our song and Evita, I was asked to do some television stuff. And I said, you know, you know, like, it's like, but I've got to dance. Actually, it was, but I've got to connect <laughs> on Broadway. So I thought TV, poo, films, poo. I'm going to go back. To, to Broadway and make my name. And I didn't realize that Broadway was on a slow tra- trajectory to what it's evolved to. It was not the same thing with all the giant musicals. They were getting a little bit smaller and becoming more intimate. It's not a criticism, just an observation in retrospect. Uh, so what happens when I came back with... Um, Lacage, I decided to stay because I saw the changes happening. And I was starting to be asked to work on TV shows as an orchestrator for other composers and occasionally on films um, as an orchestrator or a conductor. And it was slowly coming my way. It was very difficult to break in as a composer because we had John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith and Elmer Bernstein and nobody really cared about you know, a Broadway guy. So that's how it all began for me. And I was just picking up as much you know, work as I could. And tell the listeners about how someone like you gets hired for a job. Now, now you have this worldwide name where people call you and ask you. But before that, when you were starting the first you know, 20 years or something, there's... I, I don't know this. Are there auditions or do you go in and play for people or is it just reputation? Well, it was just, it was reputation. I was fortunate. Uh, I was playing, first I was a rehearsal pianist before, you know, and an assistant conductor, like I mentioned with Bill Cox. So I played piano uh, fairly well for this sort of, uh, these venues. I was a good rehearsal pianist. You got to think about this. The rehearsal pianists who were kicking around back then, Larry Hockman, who's now a very successful orchestrator, and Danny Trube, who's a successful orchestrator, we were all wannabe conductors and piano players. So we all started doing that. We get called because we worked for composers. They liked the way they we played. Uh, then we became assistant conductors, and they would like certain composers would like our work and get called again. And the reputation just grew that way. And then, of course, think back. uh, I'm trying to think of the dates, but it was, I guess, the early 80s when Alan Menken and Disney were first aligning with Little Mermaid and Newsies and those projects. So that was bringing more musical theater to the movies. It was bringing it back. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot more television, too, variety shows, uh, which had been a staple in the 60s and 70s and 80s, but those were dying down. But there was still quite a bit of that, a lot of variety shows and dance shows. So so there was always work for musical numbers and musical theater people. Okay. 
So we would get calls because we were the guys, you know. Yeah. Who came from And Broadway. in recent years, you've been working as an orchestrator, Drowsy Chaperone, White Christmas. What is your favorite project? And I recall one time we had a conversation where you said you dreamed about the trombone parts. They just came to you in a dream. <laughs> do you want to just explain? Do you remember that? Do you want yeah. to explain to our listeners and what an orchestration is just like, it's beyond even my comprehension, how you write all the parts. But I have to tell you the first time I heard Drowsy, I, I was like, that's Larry's music. I, I heard you in the orchestration. Oh, that's sweet. But what, what happened was I was always thinking about orchestration when I was playing the piano and all the great orchestrators I worked with on Broadway, Ralph Burns and Phil Lang and eventually Erwin Costa, who became my mentor. And I was always thinking that way. And, uh, it was very funny because I was making a transition to being a writer I was thinking music all the time. I actually used to dream about stuff that would come to me and it just evolved. I think my brain was working overtime to retrain myself in a new area. You know, I was used to conducting all the instruments, but, but I was hearing them differently. Was it something that you had as a goal or did it, did it, the fact that you were hearing this music make you think, well, I could orchestrate a whole show. Well, it, it, I didn't think I, I could uh, back then, but, but what happened was, here, here's the real thing behind it. I felt that being a conductor was recreative. I felt that it was not creative. I felt it, it was just, I was getting up in front of an orchestra, somebody else had written the music, and I was just basically dancing in front of an orchestra. I mean, it, it, I, th I think more of it now than I used to. Uh, yeah. and I, want, I wanted to be part of the creative process. Wow. And that's what it, what it really was. And I started to examine it more and more thoroughly. But the funny thing is, even when I was 10, 12 years old playing the piano, my brother and sister used to complain because I never played the melodies. I was always sitting at the piano playing the accompaniment. I love that. And I would leave the melody out and they say, what's that song you're playing? I have no idea. And I said, what are you talking about? It's Sun Enchanted <laughs> Evening. And they were just hearing, da, da, da. <laughs> so I, I think my heart was always in it. It was always going that way. Yeah. So you're in California now and you, it's the eighties and you come back to New York in the, early to mid nineties. And that's when I met you. And I just want to um, talk about the audition that I had. And I have never had an audition like that since Larry Blank. So I have to thank you for that. Um, usually you get to sing a part of one song and if they like you, maybe another song. But uh, I went in and sang for you and for the MD and the director and the choreographer, and you got up from the table and you went over to the piano and you said to the accompanist, you said, I I'm gonna play for her now. And then you went through my book and you were like, uh, sing this. And then I sang a third song. And then you said, do you have anything in your head voice? So I went over to my book and I showed you 
and I sang another song. So I sang four songs that day. Do you remember that? I do. I do. I don't remember the songs, but, but, but what I remembered is that you were really good. So, well, thank you. You know, so I'm not just blowing smoke, you know, because it's your show, but. (laughs) Well, you came out afterwards. Mm -hmm. I was gathering my things to leave and you came out and I thought you were just going to the phone to back then it was the pay phones. I thought you were going to make a call and you uh, sat down and started talking to me and you said, where'd you get that music? Because I conducted all of those shows on Broadway. Mm-hmm. So I think as you were looking through the book, you were like, oh, I did that show. I did that show. But what happened, listeners, is that we worked together and Larry has always been a champion of mine. He has always been someone that will answer an email if I have advice about a contract or what to do in a certain artistic situation. So, you know, I really appreciate all these years that you have just been in my corner. It means a lot to me. Well, you know, uh, uh, two, two things. Number one, you were really talented. You are really talented. So uh, I was kind of paying forward what was given to me when people recognized that I was ambitious and, you know, I had Don Pippen and Erwin Costell really pushing me along. And uh, when I heard you and you, you know, you could dance and sing and you look great. So, you know, what's not to like? So, so, and of course, uh, Chet Walker, the director choreographer was also very impressed with you. And, uh, you know, and you got to get started. You got to, got to get working. And, and it was a, Actually, I came out because I really needed to borrow a dime for the phone call. That's the real reason. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, we were supposed to do another project together that never happened, which was a revival of Sugar Babies. And it's one of those things in show business that I, I don't think of it much, but I do think that I wouldn't be sitting in this house now in Garrison, New York, if I had done that tour. It's like, have you ever seen that movie with Gwyneth Paltrow called Sliding Doors? Of course, yeah. You have, where mm-hmm. yeah, she's in London and she doesn't get on the train. And then it's like, there's a double of her that does get on the subway, the tube, and um, her life splits into two different paths. And do you find that where you are now, do you think that there were any major forks in your road that you you saw it as a fork and you know that if something had happened something had gone one way or the other or do you feel like everything has happened the way it's supposed to it's very funny that you say that i i do feel ultimately everything happens the way it's supposed to because here we are but but i remember something i said earlier i came out and people were asking me to do TV stuff when I was here with Avita and I poo-pooed the whole thing and went back to New York, I probably could have stayed hooked up into the TV thing because the eighties were very big for TV music here and, and made a lot of money doing that. And probably things would have be different. Like right now, I'd probably be totally retired, not because I was so rich, but because my my energy would have been directed in another way. And mm-hmm. What happened is by going back to New York, I met Erwin Costell, who became 
a tremendous mentor to me. So when I came back to L.A. a, a year or two later, I had him behind me. So it, it gave me a different trage trajectory. And I perhaps would not have come back to Broadway because ultimately I did go back to Broadway as an orchestrator, you know, even though yeah. it was West, West Coast based. I think it, it could have been like in sliding doors. It could have been the other pathway. I don't know where it would have le led me, but it would have certainly been way different. Is there anything that you still want to do? Is there anything that you feel like I haven't done this yet and it's something I would really love to do in your career? There's nothing that I, I crave to do because I've been fortunate and kind of done a lot of things. Um, there's no element. I just like to continue doing it, you know, and I have a career happening in Europe now more than I ever did. You know, I'm also... This is because you're interviewing me. It's great. I can talk about myself, which I wouldn't necessarily do. But, you know, I'm the resident pops conductor for the Pasadena Symphony. So that opened up other doors. Not that I'm doing symphonic literature, but it opened the doors of all the symphonic orchestra and symphonic pops, which is a whole other thing. Ten days ago, right? Sorry? You got, you got that job a few years ago, as I oh, recall, it, right? It, it actually happened in 2012. I was helping Marvin Hamlish out. He was the, the pops conductor in Pasadena, and he died suddenly. Oh, and, that's right. And when he died, they gave me his concerts for the rest of the season to finish, just because of my relationship with him. And uh, I, I frankly wasn't a big enough name if I was any name at all so they uh, engaged Michael Feinstein as the new pops conductor and Michael and I have a long-standing relationship and he basically asked me to train him for this job and that's great therefore they I actually created a position for myself that's wonderful and I'm a huge fan of his too and I, um, so what, how long of a, of a job is that? Is that a yearly thing? And when is their season? Well, their season is really like, oh, May to September, October for the, for the pops. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. But, but I'm on call for them during the whole year, whenever they need me. But that's basically the season when Michael does his concerts and it's, it's just a select few, but I help them promote whatever they need to do for pops concerts and how long have you been going to london because you travel quite a bit to europe and lately it's been france but in the past you've been to london quite a bit so mm -hmm. tell us about that what happened that's very interesting that's a whole other all all because of don pippin Don oh. Pippen, you know, who's very long established Broadway conductor from Mame, Chorus Line, Oliver, Cecil, all the hit shows he did, Applause, Woman of the Year, very well respected. So he was getting hired for these big charity galas in London and also by the BBC because they were often doing these big concerts called Friday Night is Music Night, which has uh, been happening since 1952. Wow. Um, and uh, he was getting called and he needed some help with arranging and also splitting 
uh, up some of the conducting chores. Some of these concerts were gigantic and they needed a couple of people. So he started bringing me with him uh, around 1989 is when it started for me. Then after that, he was busy doing shows. So they would call me occasionally. Sometimes we'd go together. And I've been going to London since 1989 regularly, several times a year. And then what finally happened I was doing a lot of concerts with the BBC Concert Orchestra, and they do the Olivier Awards, which are like the Tony Awards. Because of my relationships there, I was hired as the music supervisor for the Tony for the Olivier Awards because they wanted to make it a little bit more. I, I hate to say this, a little bit more American. That's what happened, and I've been conducting the Olivier Awards now for ten years, much to the chagrin of all the British conductors who say why do we have a yank conducting yeah what do you mean by when you say a little bit more american can you elaborate on that like tell the difference between the style um is it a different aesthetic well they wanted someone who was familiar with the academy awards and the 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 award type shows they were much more formal i remember uh, one year before they started doing the Olivier's as a television show, it was in a ballroom and they would go, and the winner is, and there'd be a timpani roll. Every, every <laughs> cue was the timpani. The, the, the winner is Diana Rigg in Medea. And the orchestra would play on a wonderful day like today. <laughs> and I was, I, I was just appalled. I just, are you <laughs> kidding me? <laughs> so so it, it was just a different sensibility it, it, which was really a throwback to what we used to do in the states as well if you look at the tony award shows from the early 60s before it was televised it was exactly the same you know, yeah they would play there's no business like show business for everybody <laughs> <laughs> i, I kind of love that though yeah <laughs> there's something about it that yeah you know, Larry, I could talk to you for hours and hours just because there's there's so many different parts to your life. And yet what I love about you is that you love the work and it's not, you know, I, I love the work too. And that's why I started this podcast, just because in this time period, we're in this pandemic and a lot of people have given up hope and a lot of people are just so depressed and so upset and to me I it doesn't matter if we well yes of course it matters if we can perform but it doesn't take away the fact that we love what we do and do you do you think your identity is wrapped up in your career like like if you were suddenly out of work would you would you still enjoy your life as much as you do now well no, I think I'm wrapped up in my work as well. And, and you know, my work is me, just like you're being a showgirl is you. It's like, it's <laughs> it's, but I've got to dance. It's like, you, you really have to, to have an outlet for what you were trained to do, uh, to, to make everybody feel good. And, and I really mean this. It's all going to come back and it's going to come back. I, I actually don't think it's going to morph much. I think it's going to come back very much in the way it was, uh, it's just going to take a little while longer. And I think we'll all be a little bit more careful and we might be wearing masks a lot longer than we think. And we'll be more 
careful because I I don't think this is going to go totally away for a while. But yeah. but I do think that the business is going to come back and hopefully be, because of everything having shut down, maybe there'll be a little bit of a financial reset. So the numbers will get more in line with the rest of the real world because it did get disproportionate. Absolutely. And, and not not to go into a whole other conversation, but when I was a kid going to the theater, I saw the original Fiddler on the Roof and I paid $3.25 for a ticket. Going from $3.25 to $175 is not just inflation. That's usury. People are ripping ripping everybody off because they're in it for the profit instead of, you know, making some decent money and, and doing some art. It's gotten ridiculous. I would also love to see shows just scale back just a little bit in the production. Like, I think regional theaters would be wise next season to do one or two shows that are just very simple. You don't need all the bells and whistles. I mean, I love designers, but I saw Anastasia on Broadway and I thought to myself, if the power goes out, what's like the whole show is all led and in my opinion you should be able to be in a t-shirt and jeans and do the show and have have the show come through a lot of people don't share that opinion but i i really think that simple is better i like this the original once on this island i loved that production you're just an old-fashioned showgirl. That's what it is. It's like, <laughs> but the fact is, I, I agree with you. It's it really should be that the material speaks for itself. That's why in the old days, the old days, we used to do you know a gypsy run through of, of a new show before it went on the road, and you would do a run through for all of the other show business people on a stage with no scenery, no orchestra, it was a piano, and that was the run through of the show. I did a gypsy run of um, Aida and that, that run through of the show was my favorite performance out of the whole run, just because we had the invited guests were sitting and crying in their seats. And it, I don't know. I just, I'm, I love when costumes are just real simple. I love simple sets and, you know, I mean, some, some set designers and costume designers make such beautiful things. And I am not in any way saying like their jobs are certainly very important, but it's just my taste. That's all. Well, it's, you know? it's made me think of something, uh, which is 1973. I was all of 21 years old, or I, I maybe wasn't even 21 yet. And I was the rehearsal pianist for a production of Applause with Patrice Munsell playing the Bonnie Franklin role was one little girl named Pia Zadora. Ron Field was the director choreographer and he was one of the, the greats, you know, busy, very busy at that time. It was a big hit show on Broadway. I was really happy to be playing rehearsal piano. We did a gypsy run through at the Ansonia Hotel in the ballroom. I was playing piano all by myself. It was just me at the piano playing a run through. And at the end of it, Jack Lee, who was a very, very big Broadway conductor, Bill Cox, Stanley Lebowski, another guy named Don Jennings, and another guy named Rene Wiegert, who were all big names in musical theater at that time, came up to the piano 
And I knew Bill and some of the other guys. I said, where'd you come from? And that gypsy run through caused my career to zoom because they liked the way I played. And I, I was seen at that one run through by, by these major Broadway conductors who hired me in the future. I love that story. And that's, I forgot about that, but that's really how it happened. And that's when I think Bill hired me for a season of music fair shows. Well, I have the pleasure of working with him right now. He yeah. is still working and amazing man, a lovely man. He is indeed. Mm -hmm. And when I was sitting there, you know, 21 years old, he threw the baton at me and said, you're conducting the matinee. And, Fantastic. Uh, and my parents got to see me conduct at the Westbury Music Fair, you know. And uh, at that point, they said it was okay for me not to be a doctor. <laughs> the only thing that stood in my way about being a doctor was reading, writing, and arithmetic. <laughs> goodness. Oh, my goodness. Um, are you going to France? Do you want to talk about that? I am going to France. I was... Uh, I've been booked kind of regularly by the opera to Toulon, Toulon, France, which is in the south of France on the Mediterranean. It's between, it's near Cannes and Nice and okay. near Marseille. And it's the second largest opera house in France after the Paris Opera. And uh, they do a lot of operas there, but they started doing musical theater and I got hooked up with them. So they've been calling me and I did a production of Wonderful Town few years ago in English with a huge orchestra and uh, a lot of expats who live in Paris they all speak English and it was a very good production and it was supposed to be revived right now but because of COVID they had to cancel it and they, they because the restrictions are a little bit different in France they are Actually, they're much stricter than the States, but they open venues with smaller audiences and limiting the space between people. And you got to get tested when you go to the theater on a regular basis. Got to wear your masks, keep your distance, all that kind of stuff. So they're open and they decided to do this concert, even if there's no audience, they will record it. Now the difference is in France, it's, it's state run, meaning it's financed like the national theater in England, it's financed by the government. So they have to pay the salaries anyway. So they're okay. happy, happy to do it. So financially it's a whole different thing, but they decided to do a Broadway concert instead of wonderful town using the hired cast members. And they asked me to put it together. So I will have a orchestra of probably 40 to 50 musicians doing a lot of Broadway show tunes with some good singers and uh, won't be much staging, just like a, a Pops concert. My French is not so good, so they will have somebody else doing the hosting. Uh, I've now done, I think, four or five productions at the Toulon Opera, so they know me. I'm, I'm kind of a, a fixture. They, How long they, will you be there? Only a couple of weeks. It's only three performances it's an opera schedule but uh you know i've been sending the material to the singers and uh, talking to the uh, orchestra librarian and getting the music together uh, i have a a drummer 
I usually bring a drummer from the States, but I couldn't do it this time. I had to get a special exemption to be allowed into France because they're not allowing Americans in. Right. And the, the consulate gave it to me. And of course, I have to be COVID tested before I get on the plane and all that kind of stuff. But I have permission to go for the two weeks. That's fantastic. Yeah. Wow, you have to tell us. I'm, I'm hoping you'll agree to come back sometime because this is just, we have just scratched the surface. You have so many stories. What was that story of you were playing a Christmas party and Ethel Merman walked in? And oh. <laughs> I was very young and Ethel Merman came in, walked over the piano and says, roses and B. <laughs> and I said, holy moly. Fortunately, in those days, I was uh, pretty much, you know, sharp with my piano playing and I knew it. I knew it unfortunately B flat <laughs> but I was able to do it and, fantastic and it went very well and uh, you know and that was that's my one of my Ethel Merman stories <laughs> <laughs> oh you know I have so appreciated just your advice over the years and just you know your kind words as, as everybody out there knows, show business is not linear and it's the ups and downs of it can be somewhat stressful. And when I was younger, I would, you know, sometimes get close to a job and then not get it. And you were always just very encouraging. And now that time has passed, I personally think the most important thing for all of us is to keep going. We just, you keep going day after day and if you can make some art, that's the point of it all, don't you think? Absolutely. And I think, you know, for your listeners and your, your audience who listen to this podcast, I'm sure they're disillusioned, <laughs> discouraged by what's happening. But it is going to come back. And as long as you can hold on a little while longer, it'll happen. And there, there's a, a place for everybody. Everybody has their gifts. I should just stick it out and wait. It'll come back. It'll be fine. Be slightly different, but in short order, there's going to be such a demand for entertainment because of the last four years and because of the um, uh, environment and the COVID situation. I think there's going to be an enormous demand for entertainment. Yeah, I agree, Larry. Well, I want to thank you for coming on this podcast. I think you're just a wonderful person, a fantastically talented artist. For my listeners, go listen to the original cast recordings of all the shows that Larry has orchestrated. Um, where can people find you? Do you have a website? Is there, like, if someone wants to learn more about you in your career, where should they go? Well, I have a website. It's LarryBlankMusic.com. And uh, I, I've been also, I'm advertising. This is, you know, shameless promotion. I have been teaching, conducting, and, and orchestrating. Not expensively. I've done Zoom classes and stuff like that for young music directors who want to go there and orchestrators. But I don't do it to make a living. I do it because I wanted to pay it forward. So You've been doing that since the pandemic started. I saw... I saw that, yeah. 
Yeah, I, and I did it basically to keep my skills sharp and to, to pass it on. That was the real reason. And uh, as I said, it's not like a big <laughs> money maker. It's just something I wanted to do. I also have a lot of videos up, which are just entertaining. And people who follow me on Facebook, I put up tons of videos because I managed to chronicle my entire career. You know, I always wanted to. I always wanted to have a record of it. Maybe it's great. Prove to myself I was there. You know, so. You know, before these cell phone cameras and things like that, I never owned a camera. And the only photos I have from my early years are photos other people took of me. So if I had to do anything over again, I think I would have learned how to take pictures a little better and maybe shoot some film. And but I didn't. So and and I was so in the moment back then. I really I, I didn't worry about the future. I just was like in the present moment and I, I'm okay with that. That's the way it was. I mean, the only thing I might've done differently is I would have hoped for an inheritance, but, but it didn't happen. <laughs> and then I wouldn't have had to work at all, but that, I'm joking. I, I was always very happy with what I was doing and it was always, it, it was never about money. It was about, I want, you know, as I said, but I've got to dance. I wanted to, to be out there doing my thing. And it's funny. I was just going to ask you that question because in all of the time that I've known you, you get paid for what you do, but I never, I never got the sense that you were in it for the money. Like it was just a means to make money. You were doing it for art's sake and to uh, be an artist. To be, to, you know, to express rather than impress. It was all about trying to express whatever it was that I had inside me to uh, give out. And it turned out to be the music, which which I really love and had a feel for. And um, I still enjoy it. I still enjoy doing it. I still have the same excitement. It's not, I don't get bored, you know, conducting yeah. the same stuff. Uh, a little sidetrack i did get bored conducting you know 500 performances of a show but uh, i still went in with the same enthusiasm it's very difficult mm-hmm. you know, that as a performer to do the repetition of a run is difficult but still uh, i'd rather do that than be selling newspapers on the corner right right is there any uh, hobbies that you have you flew some airplanes for a while correct Yes, I, but that, that was, uh, I, at one point, I got very interested in flying. I actually went back to when I was 16. So it progressed until I could actually afford the rental of an airplane and flying lessons. And I, did, I actually became a flight instructor at one point because I wanted to do something less exciting than conducting a show. And uh, now do you have any hobbies that I, I'm, just, I'm just curious because... When you and I speak, it's usually about work because we both love what we do so much. It's very funny because my hobbies always centered around music. I was never like, when I was a kid, I used to love to play baseball and football and stuff like that. Um, But I loved to play it. I didn't ever enjoy it as an observer. It was more about being part of it. And it was the same thing. I wanted to fly an airplane. I didn't want to just ride on one. (laughs) 
you know, and it's the same thing with everything. I always wanted to develop a skill that was a learning thing that would get my brain interested in doing it. So I can't say that I have any particular hobbies, although the COVID experience has made us all very facile with computers, much more so than we were. We're learning how to use Zoom. We're learning how to do uh, video editing and audio editing. You know, we've become very efficient at it. And I think that has happened. We've developed new skills. And that's interesting to me because anything that keeps your, your brain going and interested in what you're doing. And I have to honestly say that my hobby has become uh, teaching and doing what we're doing right now in this uh, Zoom conversation, passing it on, passing it forward, passing on knowledge, because I think for a long time that stopped. Mm. Do you have any final things you want to say to someone out there listening who has a dream of being in show business? Yeah, I, I, I honestly say it's going to be different in certain ways. It's not the show business that you and I were talking about where you have a gypsy run through with no sets and costumes, but there is always going to be entertainment because people need it to, to do their work and to, you know, get on with life. People want to be entertained. They want to, you know, be able to experience something other than what they do. And I just say, stick with it. Do not give up. If a door doesn't open, knock on another one. Just keep wow. going. That's what I think. That's, that's beautiful. And I agree with you. Well, everybody, let's give Larry Blank a wonderful round of applause wherever you're listening. Larry, I adore you. I so appreciate our friendship. And thank you for coming on. And I'll send you a check for that dime you gave me for the phone call. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Larry. <laughs> Thanks so much. The Showgirl Tip of the Day podcast has original music composed by Joshua Holloway. Find him on YouTube, Joshua Holloway Music. This podcast is written by Michelle Bruckner and edited by Michelle Bruckner and Joshua Holloway. Find me on Instagram, Showgirl Tip of Day. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next week with a new episode. Show, show.